We're going to come to a time in our service now. We're going to look at a passage from the Bible. We'll talk about what it means, why this matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, would you turn to Luke chapter 15? Luke chapter 15, if you're using this Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 740. If uh, English is not your first language, we do have an amazing team of people that each week take my manuscript and translate it into Mandarin. We've got a number of copies at the back. If that's something that would be helpful to you, I don't talk slowly, so if that would be helpful to you to follow along with what I'm saying, uh, that is available to you. We want to make the, the presentation of God's Word as accessible as possible, so make use of that if that's something that can be helpful to you. If you want to raise your hand, looks like Don is even ready to bring it to you. So uh, please raise your hand for that. If you found that passage, would you stand with me? Let's read together Luke 15. Uh, I'm approaching this message today with a little bit of fear and trembling because there is no pastor in North America that has not been influenced by the great work Tim Keller has done on uh, this. And so I'm not going to try to compare with him. I'm just going to present God's word and let him do it. Let's read together. I'm going to read starting at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners, Luke says, were all gathering around to hear him. That's Jesus. Now sinners, you see it's in quotation marks. That's kind of a junk drawer term that would include everyone you think of as like sinners, okay? Murderers, thieves, and all that. But it also was kind of a term that the Pharisees used, a derogatory term, just to kind of say everyone that doesn't meet up to our standards of external holiness. Those are the sinners. All these people here, they're gathering around Jesus to hear him. Verse 2, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one of them. If you jump down to the footnotes, you'll see silver coins is referring to this drachma, which is basically the equivalent of one day's wages. So clearly, you know, your paycheck for the day flies out the car window. You're going to pull around and try to find it. It's important that she finds this coin. She does, not, does she not light a lamp? And sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me the share of my estate. That, that's his inheritance that he would have received when the father died. He's like, I don't want to wait for you to die. Give it to me now. So the father divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, I love that, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up 
and went to his father. I don't know if you underline verses in your Bible. If you're using a pew Bible, please don't. But if you have your own Bible, underline this next verse. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is where people often stop reading, but we need to keep reading. There's more. Verse 25. Meanwhile... The older son was out in the field. This sounds like an episode of Bonanza. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. Your father's killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But here this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home. You kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate and be glad. In Greek, it's stronger. It's a, it was necessary that we celebrate because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Just ask God's blessing on this time in his word now. Spirit of God, we just ask you to come once again now and open up our hearts and our ears to hear what it is you want to say to us through this incredible story in your word. God, we believe that although this Bible that we are looking at right here, this is an ancient, an ancient collection of stories about you, we believe that because your spirit inspired men to write it, this is a living book. It still speaks today because your spirit still lives today and by it, You want to say something to us today. You want to teach us. You want to grow us. You want to transform us. That we want to leave differently than when we came in today, wherever we're starting from. And so I'm asking for you to accomplish that by your spirit. You say whenever you send out this word, it doesn't return to you void. It will accomplish the purpose for which you send it. God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, I know that it rarely is safe to do so, but I think in this instance it is safe to assume that nobody likes to lose anything. We don't like losing stuff. Unless, of course, you're thinking about that extra weight we tend to put on around Christmas holidays. We're fine with that. But pretty much anything else, losing things, to lose something is primarily a negative thing. Experience. Now, of course, how valuable or not that lost thing is to you is going to determine both the emotions you feel about losing it as well as the level to which you're willing to go to get it back. So, uh, for instance, uh, losing socks in the dryer. Maybe losing that favorite pair of jeans on vacation. You left it there, whatever it is. That's, I kind of think of that as like level one value. 
You lose it, it's kind of, I don't like losing it, but whatever. You know, and I would even include a cell phone in this list at level one, because you know why? You accidentally drop that thing in a public toilet. There's not a person here who's not going to like pause and be like, do I really care about getting that before they reach in and grab it? Do I really care? That's, that's level one value. Level two value, that can include a whole range of things. On the one hand, you can have things that have great monetary value, they're hugely valuable, but mean almost nothing to you. So for instance, think of a bank teller getting robbed, losing a huge amount of money, but she doesn't really care that much about losing it. On the other hand, you can have something that's worth almost nothing, and yet it has great value to you, hugely sentimental value to you. That I'm thinking of like a small pink plastic heart from a cupcake decoration that my youngest daughter gave me a number of years ago. My wife and I were about to head out on a date, and she gave this to me. She said, Daddy, put this in your pocket. That way, your, my heart can always be with you wherever you go. Come on. <laughs> that, that, that thing is worth like two cents, but like if you tried to take it from me, I'd fight you for it. It's so valuable to me. Love it. So that's level two, and I'm sure there are other things, but I'm saying level three value is huge. It's intense. I'm saying it's even like things like a lost spouse, a missing child. Incredible value to us. Just think about everything from like when Helen of Troy was abducted. It was said to be the beginning of the whole Trojan War when she was taken. Even up until today, Hollywood blockbusters like Taken, Ransom, Man on Fire, that just follow the, the desperate search to find a lost or missing child. There's something about those stories that just connects with us at a deep fundamental level. We just immediately get and understand both the, the level to which these people are go, willing to go to in order to retrieve that lost child and just the rejoicing, this relief and celebration that takes place when they're found. Even if we've never met those people before, we get it. And I think it's because the, the inherent value of lost, those lost things that's shared by all of us. We all realize how valuable they are. But we're concluding this summer teaching series today, and that's always a hard thing for me to let go of a teaching series. We're concluding today this series where we've been going through the parables of Jesus titled Stories of the Kingdom. Each Sunday now for the past 13 weeks, we've been looking at one of the stories that Jesus told and what it was talking about what it was he wanted to teach us about the kingdom of God, teaching us about what is valued there as well as what is despised there. And today we're actually looking at this collection of three parables, although we are going to focus our attention primarily on that third parable, classically referred to as the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. And what's interesting about these parables, particularly as it relates to what we just were talking about, is that according to Jesus, one of the things that's valued most in the kingdom of God, that brings about the celebrating in heaven itself, is also the finding and the recovery of lost people. Now, not lost, Jesus doesn't mean lost in the sense of abduction or wandering off necessarily. He's referring to a spiritual condition. Lostness is a spiritual condition that's experienced by every man or woman since Adam and Eve first rebelled against God and sin entered into creation and our relationship with God was broken. We were alienated from him. Everyone since then experiences this lostness. Jesus says whenever that spiritual condition is changed for somebody, whenever being, they go from being lost to becoming found, in the same way that a crowd erupts with applause and cheering whenever someone is pulled living or rescued out of a collapsed building, all of heaven celebrates every time 
a lost person is found. And Jesus' point in telling us that is both to reveal just how valuable his creation is to him, and for those who've been found themselves, it's to call us to say our response should also be celebration whenever a lost one is found. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to say refusal or a failure to celebrate lost things being found either reveals a heart that has forgotten that it also was once lost or that still remains in a lost condition itself. So in order to help us see what Jesus is trying to teach about the value of lost things in his kingdom and also to help us develop his celebratory heart for whenever lost things are found, I want to look at our passage this morning in three ways. We'll talk about the welcome for prodigals, the invitation to elder brothers, and then we'll close by looking at our prodigal God. Okay? The welcome for prodigals, the invitation to elder brothers, both lost according to Jesus' parable, and then we'll close by looking at our prodigal God. So if you've closed your Bibles, would you open them again? Luke 15, follow along with me as we look at this last story of the kingdom. So let's talk first of all about the welcome for prodigals. The welcome for prodigals. Now, even if you didn't grow up in church, didn't grow up reading the Bible, you very likely have still heard this story, at least the first half of it anyways. You know, about this rebellious son, he cashes in early on his inheritance, takes off for a distant country, and then proceeds to try and live like a rock star for the next few months until he's blown it all. And then, as if that weren't bad enough, there's a severe famine throughout the land so that Right around the time when his credit cards start getting denied or declined for insufficient funds, huge famine throughout the land so that now he's broke and nobody can help him. Everyone's got their own well-being to worry about now. And, of course, because of the way he left home, he can't use what every kid has as in their back pocket plan. I call mom and dad for help. That's off the table. And if you look at verse 15 of this passage here, you see the clearest picture of the absolute rock bottom this kid has hit. Look with me there. He's so desperate, he's had to hire himself out to a Gentile pig farmer, which if you know anything about Jewish culture, religious practice, Gentiles and pigs are are two things that a Gentile doesn't want to have anything to do with if they can help it. Verse 16, look there now. We see that he's even on the brink of starvation, the point where he's so hungry, he even wants to eat what's being fed to the pigs. Now we'll get to the incredible, unexpected welcome that this prodigal receives in just a second here. But before we get there, I just want to pause and kind of help sharpen our perspective on this story Jesus is telling here. Because if we don't understand the utter depths of what Jesus is actually describing up to this point, it actually weakens, it lessens our understanding of just how staggering and amazing this, the nature of his welcome is. We need to see the first before we can understand the second. So the way we truly reach that depth and understand it is actually by looking back to the beginning of our passage, verse 1 and 2. Look there. This is where we are reminded of who Jesus' audience was as he's telling these parables. You see there, it says, tax collectors and sinners, and then verse 2, Pharisees, the religious elite. They're all here together in one congregation listening to Jesus talk. I mean, can you even imagine a more diverse audience here listening to these parables and yet top of the socioeconomic pile or the bottom what did each person there have in common what's the same about all of them they're all jewish 
They're all Jewish people, right? And when you can step out of the perspective of a 21st century North American reader and and put yourself instead, hear this through the ears of a first century Jewish person living in a deeply religious, shame-honor culture like this, you see that Jesus' story, as he's telling here, this is meant to offend everybody. Everybody is offended by this story. Jesus is describing circumstances so low, so egregious that the Pharisees are repulsed, and the tax collectors and sinners are starting to feel better about themselves. They're like, wow, man, at least I'm not that bad. This kid, he has burned every bridge, lost every friend. All of his high hopes and dreams have all been shattered. He's brought dishonor on his family, and now he's even violated his own personal sense of dignity. I wonder how many of us here this morning will be willing to testify that we know what it's like to sit in that place. Or maybe at least you've been close enough that you know the smell of the pigs. I know I have. These are the most despicable circumstances Jesus is describing here. And yet, for all the despair, for all the misery of it, it's also the exact place this son needed to be in order to finally remember his father. He needed to be here before he could finally remember his father. In each of the previous two parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, Jesus speaks of this joy experienced in heaven whenever a sinner repents. That word repentance simply just means a change of direction as it relates to sin, changing our minds. When you think about sin, and could there be a more perfect description of that than what we see in verse 17? Look there with me. Jesus says, broke, broken, and up to his elbows in pig slop, the prodigal finally came to his senses. That is, he began to see the truth. He was woken up to see that the freedom, the life that he thought he had gained by leaving the constraints of his father's house had actually only put him in prison had brought about death. And as a result, he changed the direction of his life back towards his father. Now, that's exactly what repentance is. That's what it looks like. Now, you see in verse 18 to 20, with this renewed clarity of thinking, he also knows he's got no hope whatsoever of going back home now and being received, just come in like nothing's happened. He's not going to kick his shoes off, sit down and watch the hockey game with everyone. It's not going to work like that. He knows that. In fact, he knows he shouldn't expect anything but judgment and probably rejection when he goes back. He's so dishonored his family, his father in particular. And so his plan, you see there in verse 19, is he's just simply going to go and confess. Fall on the mercy of the court, really. Just kind of say, I I know. I've got no excuse for what I've done. No reason you should welcome me back. Just plead for mercy and ask that he be hired on as a day laborer so that at least he might try to repay something of the inheritance that he squandered. Of course, it was a debt he could never repay. But look with me now at verse 20. Sorry, the second half of verse 20. This is the one I wanted you to underline. Listen. But while he was still a long way off, a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. I wonder how many of you this morning would also be able to testify, you know what that feels like. 
the undeserved welcome and embrace of your Father. Because listen, the second half of verse 20, what he's describing, that's what the gospel looks like when it's saving someone. That's, it's almost like he's showing us what it looks like when the gospel saves somebody. That when I was still a long way off, not when I'd cleaned myself up enough, not when I'd said my prepared speech to God, not when I had, had done enough to deserve coming back, not when I'd paid enough of my debt, when I was still a long way off, deserving of nothing but judgment and rejection, God the Father looked down instead on me in compassion and love in my helpless estate. He stepped down from his place of honor and he ran to me. If you know anything about Middle Eastern culture, you know respectable men would never run because they would have to lift up their robes in order to do so and exposing your legs, I guess, was considered shameful. He sacrificed his position and dignity and he dressed me in it. He pursued me, sought me out, and then embraced me and showered me with his love and affection. I don't care who you are, what's in your past. If you know Jesus as your Savior this morning, that's your story. That's what God did for you. And if you don't know Jesus, that's what he can do for you. There is no one who is outside of his reach to do that. And I love verse 21. Look there. The prodigal, he can't even grasp what's going on right now. He doesn't understand. So he just starts trying to go into his prepared speech. Father, I know I've sinned against you, and I like the father. In verse 22, he's just like, yeah, 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 right, right. Hey, quick, bring the, what does he say? Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. That's what the welcome for prodigals looks like. Every time, that's what it looks like. Celebration, feasting. And if you remember, again, remember Jesus' audience who's listening to this. Can you even imagine how these tax collectors and sinners are hearing this? Those who've been despised and rejected, told all their lives, and now believe you're not worthy of acceptance by the God of the universe. You're not worthy of acceptance in his kingdom to hear this. Is it any wonder what we read in verse 1 that these are the people that want to gather around Jesus to hear him? Because this is good news. It's the best news there is. And maybe you're here this morning, you never heard about God's welcome for prodigals. Or maybe you knew it once, but you've forgotten it. If you've never heard this message before, I, I pray that this Jesus story is just blowing your mind right now. That... That opening your heart to the hope that no matter what's in your past, there could still be a place in God's kingdom for you too. And there is. There is. Church, listen, we're missing something critical in our presentation. If our gospel declaration and demonstration doesn't offer the same hope to prodigals as Jesus did, it should. Maybe you're here and you knew that hope once, but maybe now you've wandered away. Maybe you've sinned against heaven and against your Father, and you're believing the lie now that you've fallen too far to come home. If that's where you're at this morning, I pray Jesus' story is just shining a light into that prison cell and reminding you just how much the Father loves to find lost things. Wherever you find yourself this morning, simply 
Turn your gaze back towards home, says Jesus. And you'll see the Father running towards you. But of course, prodigals were not the only people listening into Jesus' stories about being lost and found worthy. Verse 2, again, plainly tells us the Pharisees were listening in as well. And, and rather than inspiring hope and longing in their hearts, Jesus' teaching about the kingdom made them angry and resentful. Why? Well, because these guys had dedicated their whole lives to following God, studying his word, getting the rules perfectly down to the smallest little thing. They're getting it done right. So how dare Jesus suggest that, that, that this prodigal would be welcomed, even celebrated when he returns? Are you kidding me? Which is precisely why so many of our Bibles, Sunday school lessons we've heard all through our lives can be misleading when they title Jesus' third parable here, the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son, as though it were only describing God's welcome for prodigals and not also describing God's invitation to elder brothers which is what we're going to talk about now. I don't know if you knew, uh, uh, chapter headings, even chapter titles and verses, these are a later addition to the Bible. This was not in the original Bible. These are not inspired things, so we get a pass. Let's look at this. Let's talk about this, the invitation to elder brothers. The invitation to elder brothers. Now, yes, okay. If, If the parable stops in verse 24, okay, fine. Jesus' parable is talking about an amazing Pursuit of God and welcoming of undeserved rebels. Great. But of course, it doesn't stop there. It continues all the way through to the end of verse 32 here. And even just look at the way Jesus begins the parable in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons, he said. So clearly, it's indicating its story is about both sons, not simply the younger one. And in fact, many commentators suggest that while Jesus' parable absolutely teaches about the love of the Father for prodigals, for lost prodigals, given what we read in verse 1 and 2, they say very likely Jesus only related the story of the younger son in order to provide the context for what he wanted to teach about elder brothers. Let's look at this next part of the story quickly, and then I'll just try and show you why I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Look at verse 25, first of all. Meanwhile, the oldest son was out in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. But now look at the immediate response of the elder brother to this news of his brother's return. He says, the oldest son became angry and refused to go in. Okay, so we can already see there's going to be no... Disney ending to this story, right? There's going to be no Brian Adams singing a ballad in slow motion running to each other. Oh, brother. That's not going to happen here. Maybe that's what happened with the father, but it's not going on here. Clearly, angry at this happening, he's not going into the celebration. Forget it. And what's very interesting to note is that for all that this elder brother is going to go on to say right now about the dishonoring behavior of the younger son, by, not, by refusing to go into the celebration, again, this is a shame-honor culture, The older son was absolutely dishonoring his father by not going in. So, what that's showing us, we're seeing once again, the father has to once again step down, leave his place of honor and dignity, and now pursue his other son, who is also alienated from relationship with him, and invite him to come in. But look at the elder brother's further dishonoring response now in verse 29. 
His father comes out, sorry, end of verse 28. Father comes out and pleads with him to come into this celebration. But verse 29, he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Now we've got to look at these separately. There's two things going on here. We've got to look at them separately. Because on the one hand, come on, he's making a good point, right? This doesn't make sense, the father's response. It doesn't make sense why he would have this wasteful use of what's going to be his inheritance one day. He's like, why are you using my stuff this? When he's already wasted so much other stuff, why would you use more stuff to celebrate someone who's wasted? It doesn't make sense. And yet on the other hand, when you see the language that the older brother uses, when he's addressing his father, you begin to see why, according to Jesus, the elder brother is equally as lost equally as alienated from the father as the younger son was. Look, first of all, at how the elder brother addresses the father. Verse 29, he doesn't even address him by his given title. He just says, look. Now, I don't know what kind of home you grew up in, but I tell you what, if I ever started a conversation with my mom or dad going, look, <laughs> let's just say the discussion would not have gone well for me. But look, at the ne- look, look what he goes on to say next. All these years I've been slaving for you. You, and, and I've never disobeyed your orders. Okay, so look at that. I've slaved for you. I've kept the rules. I've followed them perfectly. Which shows us clearly. He sees the father not as a, as a loving parent that he's in relationship with. He sees him as a slave owner. You're a slave owner, and I have earned acceptance in your house through my obedience, which is precisely why the father's celebration of the younger son is so incomprehensible to him. In Jesus' parable, he hasn't kept the rules like I have. I'm here working. He's going out. You're celebrating him? No. Celebration should be for the one who keeps the rules. And it's also why the Pharisees are so angry and indignant in verse 2 of the passage. Jesus welcoming and eating with tax collectors and sinners. They haven't followed the rules like we have. they're, They're not acceptable before God like we are. But of course, what both fail to see is that acceptance and worthiness in the Father's house is not something we earn through slaving obedience. It's something that's granted to you. Acceptance in the Father's house is granted to sons and daughters in right relationship with their father. And maybe you want to stop me there and be like, well, wait, wait, wasn't the the older brother was a son of the father, though, wasn't he? Yes, he was, but only as much as the prodigal son was as well. And what Jesus wants to see is that both sons were alienated from the father, one through disobedience and the other one through thinking that he didn't need the acceptance of the father because he'd already earned acceptance into the house himself, or at least so he thought. It's a key thing to remember in Jesus' teaching here and why we've got to be careful not to over-allegorize Jesus' parables. Because when we look at verse 31 and 32... Jesus is calling him my son, and he says, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. We can't read that and say, okay, so does that mean elder brothers, they are good? They're accepted, and and is that what it's saying? No, all Jesus is doing there is carrying through the metaphor. The older son, he had the rest of the inheritance, and so he's just saying, everything I have now belongs to you. You're still here. You didn't go away. That's all he's saying. He's not trying to say that the father and the older son are in good relationship. Suggesting in verse 7 there, when he talks about there's some, that there's some category that actually exists of people who don't need to repent. He's not trying to present some sort of strange category of people and say, oh yeah, you know, the Pharisees, 
You guys, we know that you and God are good. You guys have earned your way. But we got to be more gracious with these other guys who can't keep up as well as you. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's what Jesus is trying to get at with all three of the parables, actually. What is valued and what brings about celebration in the kingdom of God is when a lost person living in rebellion and alienation from God comes to their senses. That is, when they acknowledge their need and turn to him in repentance. Why? Because that's how a lost person truly becomes found. That's how a dead person comes alive again. That's, that's, that's Ephesians 2 right there. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, but through Christ we've been made alive. That's how it happens. And when that happens, all of heaven celebrates. That's what brings about celebration in heaven. And so the absence of celebration that so infuriated the older brother, it's not because he wasn't keeping the rules well enough. It's solely due to the fact that he was still lost. He was still dead. And he was alienated from his father. And, and particularly as good church folk, we need to hear this. We need to look at this and understand it because it's, it's all too easy to develop this same kind of pattern in our own lives. It's too easy to begin setting up our own standards of what, accept, what it is to be acceptable before God that goes well beyond Jesus' standard of repentance and belief. I mean, that's exactly what the Pharisees did. They set up their own standard. This is what it means to be acceptable to God. This is the bar that I reach. And then that became the thing by which they hammered people, looked down on people and judged them because you can't live up to the same standard as well as I can. So clearly, I'm accepted and you're, you're not quite there. That's, that's exactly what they did. Jesus states clearly in each of these parables, acceptance in his kingdom is based on repentance, based on changing the orientation of our hearts back towards the Father. When that happens, heaven explodes. Celebration, feasting takes place. And in a very real sense, listen, in telling these parables, Jesus is almost like taking on the role in real time of the elder father and going out to these elder brothers and inviting them to come in and celebrate. He's he's doing it in real life as he's telling them the story inviting them to come and celebrate the lost being found the way the rest of his house is. And if you look at your own life and you know that you're also not celebrating, you hear about a lost one being found and it doesn't meet your standard of what you are, but did he say this? Does he know this verse? All kinds of standards we start to put on top of just seeing someone who's turning their heart towards the Father, even if they're still a long way off. If you see that and you know you're not celebrating either, I suppose one reason could be forgetfulness. It could be forget- we just forget the fact, hey, I, I used to be lost too. I was once alienated from the Father and needed his undeserved welcome. That, that could absolutely be the case. But listen, for the Pharisees, it wasn't forgetfulness. It wasn't forgetfulness that kept them from joining in on the celebration. It was self-righteous indignation because they believed they'd earned their way into the kingdom and these ones hadn't. Why would we celebrate that? I don't know if you've ever been to a Canucks game before and there's this strange thing that happens, not always, but with certain teams, you'll get like five guys who out of the whole 18,000 plus fans, they're fans of the other team. Even if they're not wearing those hated jerseys, they're easily identifiable. You know why? Because every time the Canucks score and the place explodes with cheering and celebration, how do you know? They're the only ones not standing. Sitting there, shaking their heads. Grumpy. 
and not celebrating what the rest of the world is celebrating. How about you? Do you celebrate what heaven celebrates? Do you rejoice whenever any lost one is found? If not, it could be just a matter of forgetfulness, and that's pretty easily corrected. But the hard truth Jesus is presenting here, calling these elder brothers out about, is that the reason for not celebrating with the rest of the kingdom could also be because you're cheering for a different team. There's so much more. There's a ton more I want to say about these parables. I think we could have our own like eight-week series just on these three parables. There's so much here. But what I want to leave us with this morning is what I see as an essential focus, something we need to see. It's key to understanding the depth of what these parables is, but it's often overlooked. I, I know, I'll confess even myself, in my study these past few weeks, I, when I saw it, I was kind of like, oh, I never thought of it that way. And the connecting theme running through all of these parables that ties them together and I think shows us the true deeper meaning is this. It's showing us the incredible value of lost things to God. The incredible value of lost things to God. Does that surprise you? We talked as we began this morning about how the value or not of a lost thing will usually determine the emotions we experience as well as the level to which we're willing to go to get it back. I wonder how many of us have ever read these parables, not from the perspective of the lost thing, which is what we tend to do, but reading them instead from the perspective of the one who's lost them. That is, God the Father. Theologian James Boyce, he really brought this out, this theme up for me clearly in his commentary on his passage. Listen to what he says. So often we consider these stories from the point of view of the lostness of the sinner. We think of the misery of the sheep, the condition of the coin, or the degradation or bondage of the son. But Jesus begins not with the object's loss, but with the loss sustained by the owner or the father. That's what, that's what Jesus focuses on. And when you see that, when you see it, you can't, you can't read these things the same anymore. You can't read about a lost sheep without also thinking about the, the shepherd who leaves, he endangers the loss of a whole 99 sheep. He leaves them in the open field to go searching for the lost missing one. You can't read about a lost coin without seeing the incredible labor of this woman who lights a lamp and sweeps her whole house until she finds it. You can no longer read about lost sons without seeing a father staring out under the horizon every day waiting to see his searching for his son, about giving extravagantly, wastefully even, to celebrate the lost prodigal coming home or stepping down from his rightful place of honor to seek out an equally lost elder brother. It changes the way you see it. And don't mishear me, yes. Absolutely, these stories teach us incredible things, amazing truths about ourselves, but I don't think they're primarily about us at all. They're about the Father. Each and every one clearly demonstrating the deep love and compassion he has for lost things, as well as the limitless expense he's willing to pay in order to recover them. The Apostle Paul says it this way, 2 Corinthians 8. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, gave up everything from position to safety to, to riches, all so that through his poverty... The result of his extravagant giving, you might become rich. 
you might be welcomed in to the kingdom. In fact, think about the title that's so often ascribed to this last parable, the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines prodigal this way, characterized by profuse or wasteful expenditure. Profuse or wasteful expenditure. Now, it's obvious why that would be applied to the younger son, but think about it. In light of what Jesus has demonstrated in these parables about the response, the incredible, amazing, consistent response of the father to lost things in these parables, how much more should these collection of parables be named instead stories of our prodigal God? Let's pray together.